And as we come to the word of God to gather around the word, let's ask the Lord that he would speak into our lives. Amen. We need to hear what the Spirit is saying, don't we? And we need to know what God wants to bring to our own attention in our individual lives, but also corporately as a church. So let's ask the Lord that he might lead us now, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for the word of God, which is life to us. And we want to pray that you would irrigate our lives by your spirit, Lord. We acknowledge our utter dependency upon you. And we acknowledge, Lord, that without you, we can do nothing. We have nothing of ourselves and in ourselves that can possibly merit any favor with you. Lord, our only goodness is the Lord Jesus himself. And Father, we want to come to you on the grounds of what your son did for us at Calvary. It's the means of our plea that you would meet with us through the written word this day. Lord, please open the scriptures to us. Open our eyes to the word of God, Lord. We confess our blindness. We confess, Lord, that we little understand the things of God as we ought. But we are asking you, Lord, to cause us to realize that position you have given to us in the Lord Jesus of being seated with him in heavenly places. And we would know what it is to, Lord, receive from you. We pray that we would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Lord, we ask of you to impart your word to us. And where conviction comes and where you're requiring something of us individually or corporately, Lord, as we go through this time together, we ask that, Lord, we would have a heart to receive what you're saying into the very depths of our hearts so that, Lord, we respond to what you are saying in the way you want us to. Lord, we want to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of it also. And Lord, we need your grace for that as well. How dependent we are on the living God. How needy we are, Lord. But we just ask of you that you would just furrow a hunger into the depths of our hearts. Lord, please, where we are satisfied to just continue where we are, we pray that you'd root out of our hearts that kind of wrong satisfaction to just stay halfway up the mountain as it were lord lead us on higher with you we pray bring us onto higher ground with you lord we are asking you to shake us out of any complacency of heart lord deliver us from simply in a sense just weighing up our spiritual condition with the atmosphere around us we pray that we would not have any other measurement other than the lord jesus himself and we pray that lord god you would raise us up onto a higher level with you. You know what the need is of every member in this church, Lord. You know the need of our hearts more than we do. We're deceived by what we think we need. But, oh God, you know actually what we need. And it's the medicine of your word that we're after, applied by the Spirit of God. Lord, would you give your analysis over our condition, we pray. And we ask, Lord, that we would be satisfied to receive from you how you see us and not to judge our own condition by our own ways or our own hearts. Lord, please overrule in this time, we ask. May your anointing be on the speaking of your word and on the hearing of it. We realize time is short and of the essence. Please help us not to waste this time. Give us an attentiveness to you, Lord. And Lord, we pray in your mercy and grace, you would deal with the vessel speaking. The Lord, I wouldn't interrupt your flow or what you want to say to us. But Lord, I'd be willing to submit to you and every one of us to what you would say to us. We look to you for help, Lord. Be with us now, we pray. We commit ourselves and this time into your hands. And by faith, 
We stand into that anointing together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you know, um, when I've been speaking the word of God here at Court Farm, I've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been specifically looking not so much a detailed um, analysis of what the scriptures are saying verse by verse, but we've been looking more at the pattern of the early church, and we've been looking at how the church came into being as it were, and how the Spirit came upon the people of God, and how as a people of God today, we are seemingly so far removed from the early church. Do you remember the early church was under a lot of difficulties? They were only small in number. They didn't have a great um, uh, uh, lot of people that they could turn to for help in government. They didn't have those kind of resources. In fact, most of the leadership were against this new group of people, those who were in the way. But thank God, we read in the Word of God that these people turned the world upside down. Now, something happened, right, that is not purely of man, that a small company of people could shake the whole of that known empire then. And uh, would to God that we had a church in this day that, by the grace of God, could do a little bit of shaking in our areas and in society. We see the enemy, don't we? Just prowling around on every side, seemingly able to gain ground at will. And we see very much a church in a weakened state without a voice. It seems that we are not in the position that our forefathers were in concerning their authority with God. But God wants us to know authority with him for ourselves. Every one of us to come to that place whereby we're saying, Lord, would you do something in our day to shake the atmosphere in our nation? Because we live in a godless nation now, don't we? That doesn't know the things of God. That has turned its back on God. That has reneged on so many laws that were built upon our Judeo-Christian heritage. And here we are. We're in a mess. But thank God, I believe the Lord does want to raise up something of a church in these days that learns to stand and is able to even confront something of the opposition that we're facing. Only the Lord can help us, but thank God he can. And would to God that we'd know an outpouring of the Spirit on our meetings in such a way that we would be grieving over our sin, friends, and over the state of the church in this nation. We would be grieving over our smallness before God. And that there would be leaders that would weep between the porch and the altar and cry out to God, Lord, spare your people. I want to ask, where are they? Where is the weeping before God? I thank God I heard of a meeting. Just somebody spoke to me last night on the phone of a particular meeting that happened not too far away from here within the last month of a particular sister who got up and shared about abortion with a group of leaders and ministers. And after she shared, the group almost came into a spontaneous sense of, of, of conviction, of sin over where we've come to as a people. And they all got on their knees and began praying and pleading with God that God would do something. Spontaneously. This is a work of the Spirit of God. You just don't get that in meetings. We don't aim for that in conferences. Conferences are so often about the speaker up the front, but would to God we'd have meetings where our own agendas would be scrapped and that the law would be able to get in and begin to bring upon us the desperate need that there is 
for intercession to rise up in our nation again. We need to cry out to God that the Lord would give us a desperate heart. A desperate heart. Not just being evangelical. We often think it's okay if I believe the right things, I believe abortion is wrong, I believe whatever, homosexuality is wrong, therefore I'm right. Not so. What does it affect? The devils believe God. They believe God more than we do. But the fact is it doesn't mean anything of itself, does it? But when someone will get before God and begin to call on God for the burden over that issue to affect their heart, then the enemy knows there's trouble. I want to tell you something and try me out on it. Try me out on it. The moment you decide, right, I'm going to seek God over the state of the church in this nation. I'm going to plead with God. I'm going to get into my closet. I'm going to learn to pray. I don't really know how to pray, but I have the word of God and the spirit can show me. And I mean business. I want to get through with God. The moment you do that, you'll find the enemy's interested in you. Try me out. There'll be opposition left, right, and center because the enemy knows to a degree what's valuable. And we need to once again plead with God that he give us a burdened heart where our hearts are affected, where there's weeping in us because of the state of everything round about us. Brothers and sisters, I don't know any alternative to this nation. Any alternative other than people get on their faces before God and begin pleading with God that God would do something. Friends, how bad does it have to get? Think about it. Think about the children. How bad does it have to get with the kind of things that they're being taught in schools? How bad before the people of God begin to fall on their face and say, Oh God, we've slipped We've fallen. Things are going wrong. Help us. Last time I was speaking, we mentioned together about this matter that the, the leaders said they would give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Do you remember that, some of you? We talked about that. I want to tell you, friends, as you go to pray, you may not feel much. Over an issue. But as you plead with God, as you pray, and as you go on in prayer, you begin to find the Lord will disclose his heart to you. And there's such a privilege in sharing the grief in the Lord's heart over things that are happening. It will never destroy you. You never come out of a prayer meeting with God where his spirit has moved upon yours and brought that kind of crushing. You never come out of that feeling depressed and heavy and lost. You come out of it with a sense of being alerted to what has happened and your spirit rises within you and you want to go back to that place of prayer. And ours prayer can just go like that. Just like that. I've been in meetings where the prayer times have just... Because the Spirit of God has come upon us, aided us. It's this kind of prayer we need. Don't you think this is where everything started in the book of Acts? They didn't get up to the front or to the upper room and said, right, first of all, we need a committee. Who's going to lead the committee? For us to be the church that oversees these people so that we have order and then we do structure and then we do this and then we do that. No, they didn't do all that. They simply waited on God and waited on God and waited on God. Praise God. Do you remember what happened? It's as though the room was shaking, wasn't it? The Spirit of God came down. 
It's exactly what happened. It repeated through history. You have to go think about the Hebrides revival, 1949 to 1952. There was a man who really laid hold of God in one of those meeting rooms, and the people there witnessed that the actual house that they were praying in literally was shaken. It shuddered. It shook. And then they went out of that room. Hear me now. They went out of that room and they saw the whole village ablaze with the presence of God. You say, how do you know that? Because people were coming to get help when no preacher had been out to give it. The presence of God came down on the meeting. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know the presence of God coming down on our meetings? Imagine our children living through church life without ever knowing the power of the God that we worship. It is the challenge of, a, of us in this generation to seek God that our children may see the glory of God. But they're not going to see it if we're not asking for it because they're not going to ask for it. But some of you have known it. You've known those meetings where the Lord has come in. The Lord has moved by His Spirit, hasn't He, into the meeting. You've had a glimpse of glory. And then it's gone. But friends, the Lord wants to presence himself among his people. That's his desire. That's the burden of God's heart. Why are so meetings so dead, so lifeless, so empty, so full of religiosity, but no power, no light, no reality, no unction in the pulpit, no worship? Why is it that we don't know the presence of God? Is it to do with something of the fact that we haven't been calling on the Lord to come to us again? I've been in meetings where people will quote the scriptures, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst, but the Lord doesn't seem to be there. And you've got the church at Laodicea, where the Lord's knocking on the door. is not even in the congregation. Is it possible for a church to exist without the Lord being in the midst of the people? I ask you, is it possible? It is possible. It is possible. It can get to such a place where we can get to a stage where the Lord even writes Ichabod over the top of it. The Lord's no man's debtor. He doesn't say, well, this used to be a great church. The Lord's not impressed by these things. What he's impressed by is hearts that are willing to get desperate with God. It doesn't mean you have to be a flamboyant, emotional person. That's not what I'm asking. It's the heart being affected. And the Lord says, doesn't he, rend your hearts, not your garments. We can have outward show of rendering, but actually rending. But, oh, God looks to the heart. Oh, God, would you do something in our hearts? We live in days where hearts are so hard and impenetrable. Unless God deals with our hearts, we'll go along with the crowd. How easy, it is, how easy is it for the Lord to get you to grieve? Over sin. How easy is it for the Lord to, to woo my heart, to grieve over iniquity? What does it take to break me? Just consider for a moment, friends. Think about this. Think about this. There are things that people watch on your television screens that two generations beforehand would have been shocked was ever even on television. 
Doesn't this show us that our hearts have grown harder? We have become hard. And if we say, well, I'm okay, we deceive ourselves. But where's the brokenness in the house of God over it? Do you see what I mean? Where's the saying, oh God, we have sinned. Me and my father's house have sinned. We have sinned. We have rebelled. You know this kind of prayer that Nehemiah had over the brokenness of Jerusalem. Friends, the walls were broken down in Jerusalem and the Lord had his servant who was willing to weep before God over it. The walls are broken down over the Jerusalem round about us, eh? The foxes have got in. The wild beasts get in. Their children are touched. And the Lord looks. And surely heaven waits aghast. Where are the saints of God? Where are the saints of God? May the Lord help us to loose our hearts from our rigidity over our programs and our lives. There comes a point where just living our own ways cannot suffice any longer if we're to know a breakthrough for the kingdom of God in our day. Do you know one of the best medicines to not becoming introspected and self-centered is to pray for somebody else? And begin to call on God that the Lord would warm our hearts towards him. We are a generation, aren't we? Wouldn't you agree with me? I'm speaking from my own experience. We're a generation that is saturated in self. And it's infectious. And it comes into the house of God. And everything's man-centered rather than God-centered. Everything is revolving around us rather than revolving around God. Everything's about my life, my home, my school, whatever it may be. But God is looking for those who will lose their lives to find it. You don't hear about the cross being worked in our lives these days. What about you and me? How available are we to God? Do you know the key to society is not us being zealous for God. The key to society is God, by his spirit, being able to use and get through us to a people that are absolutely bankrupt all around us. We need the presence of God in our meetings again. We need the glory of God among us. How much does it concern our hearts that we don't know the Lord in a powerful way among us? Surely we need revival. We need revival. Revival begins with me getting before God and allowing God to do some painful surgery. And all of us saying it's not enough to stay where things are. I've got to change. Revival begins with me. I'm, I, I'm not really interested in becoming a spiritual diagnostic with what's wrong with everybody else. I've got enough going on with my own heart, but I do know this. As part of the church, we have failed. And we need to pray that God would revive us and change us and empty us out of all of self. This awful, 
jockeying for position and rivalry within the house of God. It's everywhere. But who will get before God, close the door and say, Oh God, my son's gone astray. Please do a work in his life and prevail with God in prayer. Prove God. Let the Lord lead you on to bigger things. There's no great man or woman of God who became an intercession, an intercessor that didn't begin somewhere. Right? That didn't begin where we are. Oh Lord, help us to pray. Help us to be revived. Help us to be changed. We need the Spirit of God coming down upon our meetings again. I don't think necessarily there's going to be a whole nationwide revival, but I believe there can be a revival enough in order that the enemy doesn't get his own way in our nation. What about on our watch? This is our watch. This is our day. The Lord's put you into the church today. You're a believer today. You're a servant of God today. I'm a servant of God today. May the Lord help us to be free will volunteers in the day of his power. Psalm 110. How available are we? Hudson Taylor said, unless he is Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. The songwriter put, here I am, holy, available. As for me, I will serve the Lord. I want to have that heart, don't you? May the Lord help us. Brothers and sisters, as I share with you this, this day, the burden on my heart is the presence of God among his people. The presence of God among his people. Or if you like as a title, the pattern is for the presence of God. The pattern is for the presence of God. I mentioned that we're going through the book of Acts together. But I want to take a step back from that to just give you the overview again and to see why we are doing this. Why is it that we need to see the pattern of the early church. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, please. Our burden for this morning is that we might know the presence of God among us. The presence of God among us. In the book of Genesis, it means the book of origins, the book of beginnings. You have this wonderful creation that the Lord sets into play. And you have within chapter 3, within chapter 2, sorry, you have the creation of man. And you have this tremendous sense that God has created man for the purpose of ruling, 
for the purpose of reigning. Not independently of God, but with God. And in chapter 3 and verse 8, after the fall of man, we read this word, these words. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, his desire was for fellowship, for closeness, for communion. Just look at that verse 8. It says, when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. But you know, before the fall, there was that communion with the Lord. It's as though the Lord would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He would be with them in the garden. And they were created unto communion with the Lord. His desire was that his presence should be amongst his created ones. And that's the burden right from the very inception of mankind. The Lord wanted a people whom he could be in fellowship with, who he could be in communion with, who he could walk with in the garden. Could you imagine what it must have been like? Adam and Eve, no, no sin, in the garden with the Lord. And the presence of God was in the garden. The presence of God was in the garden. The Lord wanted to be with his people and to dwell with them and be among them. But after Adam and Eve sinned, there was obviously that breaking off and Adam and Eve could no longer be in that garden and there was protection given so that they couldn't take of that tree that they were not meant to take of. But nonetheless, before that, the desire of God's heart was to have those whom he could be in fellowship with, could, be, could know his presence, know his nearness. And he told Adam and Eve to procreate, to fill the earth. And what a family is for, for relationship, to be together. And God wanted to be with his created ones. Such a marvelous thing, right there. You can sense it, even in verse 8. God wanted to be with them, but Adam hid himself from the Lord. What a terrible thing it is. That the very ones that the Lord created ended up hiding themselves from God. And so there was a separation that had to take place because God is righteous and God is holy. Yet, you know, through the early chapters of the book of Genesis, you still find it's in God's heart to be amongst his people. Do you remember what it says about Enoch? That he walked with God. He was a man who walked with God, and then it says, and he was not, for the Lord took him. He's a man that walked with the Lord hundreds of years. He was in the presence of God. God had someone who he could be with in Enoch and be alongside with and have fellowship with. There was Abraham. 
Abraham was a friend, as it were, to the Lord. Now, it's, very one, it's one thing for, to say, the Lord is my friend. It's another thing for the Lord to say, John is my friend. A whole new thing. Are you a friend of God? Or is he just there for you? You know? This is what we need to ask ourselves. But here was Abraham, a man who was a friend of God. And there were others as well. Noah walked with God, didn't he? There were those that were close to him. There were a few who the Lord could still be with on a one-to-one basis and walk with them and be with them. But generally speaking, things weren't the same as they were in the garden. But you can see God's heart that he desires his presence to be among his people. Even after the fall, we have these verses where it speaks of the Lord being with them and these people walking with God. But then after the creation of the nation, of the people of God, of Israel, you go to Exodus and you find that after the Lord has brought his people out, he wanted Moses to create a structure for the people of God. And we read of this in Exodus chapter 24. So if you move on there, please. Exodus chapter 24. Verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tablets of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua and Moses went up into the mount of God. And you remember he was in the presence of God for a number of days before the Lord even spoke to him. So often we struggle with five minutes. <laughs> but here's Moses is waiting on the Lord for days before there's a clear word from God. And yet when the Lord speaks to him, he doesn't speak to him about the commandments to start with. He speaks to him of something else. And for pages in your Chapters from chapter 25 onwards, you find that the Lord is actually speaking to Moses about the tabernacle, not about the commandments. Isn't that interesting? I think it is. Well, look at what it says in chapter 25 and verse 8. And let them make a sanctuary. God was wanting to get Moses' attention, obviously to give him the commandments, but also to share with him the pattern for a, a temple, or rather a tabernacle, which was an, something that they could erect easily and take with them round about. Um, it was something that was to be moved about with them in the wilderness as they traveled. And so the Lord gives Moses the pattern for this tabernacle, and he then shares with him the very reason that he gives it to him. And let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell among them. What was the purpose of the Lord giving these instructions to Moses? It was to provide a way for the people of God to once again know the presence of God among the people of God. That was the purpose of it. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. And Moses had to do it exactly as the Lord prescribed it to be. If he would have added anything to it or taken anything from it, the Lord would not dwell amongst his people. But after listing everything that needed to be done within the tabernacle, the Lord goes on to say to Moses in verse 45 of chapter 29, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. There it is, you see. The purpose is that all the instructions given were so that the Lord might be amongst his people. And every element of the tabernacle is symbolic of some element to do with the Almighty God. Actually, it's very interesting when you consider the tabernacle. If you approached it, there was only one way into the outer courts. There was only one entrance. There wasn't a number of entrances into the outer court. You couldn't decide, well, I'm coming from, I don't know, the west side, so I think the door should be made for where my particular tribe is. It would make things so much easier for me to get in and get out, and for convenience sake, we'll have a door on either side. It's nothing like that within the tabernacle. What does the scripture say? There was only one entrance where you could go in the tabernacle. Well, who is the entrance to the tabernacle? It is the Lord Jesus himself. It says in the word of God, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One of the reasons we don't know the presence of God among us generally in the church is because of the deception of the ecumenical movement. That's one of the reasons why we're in such a state where we've lost our power. We've said, no, you can come through a side door. You can come through a side door. Listen, I'm not making this up. I'm telling you the truth. I've heard it firsthand. I was, in, I was in a particular conference in another country, and I won't say where or who the people were. But if I mentioned this particular group, most of you would know them. One of the leaders in this group told us, one of the leaders told us that they were not a born-again believer, but they were a Christian. And they were one of the leaders on this particular event. That gives the impression there's another door into the outer courts. But there's only one door, friends. You cannot come to faith apart from the Lord Jesus. There is no other avenue. And the problem is we've opened up all kinds of false doors. I may tread on some of your toes this morning. I don't know. I don't mean to. I love you all. But... Um, in love, I'm going to tread on one or two, possibly. 
the alliances between true evangelical churches and the Roman Catholic Church is another door. We must be delivered from it completely. Now, I sense this in my spirit a little stronger, but we do need to be separated from the Roman Catholic Church because it's coming in. It's coming in, just filters in just a little bit of Roman Catholicism. Friends, it's a different gospel. It's the same words, but a different gospel. That's the deception of it. And it leaves multitude of people in utter bondage. And it's so clever of the enemy to do it. But let's have another door. It looks like the same door, but it's a different door. Do all roads really lead to Rome? (laughs) I tell you something. I remember hearing the story of Keith Green, the famous Christian singer, who went to Leonard Ravenhill and he said, I've got another phrase for this. All roads lead to Rome. Leonard Ravenhill said, what's that? He said, they don't lead to Rome, they lead to the judgment seat of Christ. He was absolutely right. Ultimately, we're all going to be judged by the Lord Jesus. But no, you can't get to the Lord Jesus through Mary. You can't. Can't get to God through Mary. And I believe Mary was one of the most amazing women who walked on the face of this earth. I do. But you can't get to God through Mary. You can't get to God through any other media. There's one mediator, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And I know of even one man who, because of this matter of Roman Catholicism, tripped up. And he hasn't pursued the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to make sure we're following the Jesus of the book. We do need to. Because it's the way of deliverance. It's the way of deliverance. God preserve us from the deception of Roman Catholicism. I thank God for the bishops that stood out many years ago. People like J.C. Rao and the Puritans and others. But where is it today? We're offering people... Different measurements. We need to be aware of this. There's only one way. When you went through that way, when you went through the door, the first thing that you would have seen in the tabernacle is the altar of where the offerings were made. And that speaks to us of the work of the cross. Friends, when you come to the Lord Jesus, the first thing the Lord Jesus does is take you to the cross. There's no other way. The first thing we need to be confronted with is the fact that Jesus died on a cross because sinners needed to be saved. Now, here's another thing which we've watered down on within the church today. Particularly within this century, within the last 20 years, another deception has come in. Which is basically coming against the teaching of what's called substitutionary atonement. The belief and the biblical truth that Jesus actually took the punishment for the sins of mankind upon himself so that mankind may never experience the punishment of their sins upon themselves. Now there's people who are now 
is preaching against that. Leading evangelicals even, so-called. Who are saying, no, Jesus didn't die. Jesus didn't bear the wrath of God for our sins. And some are even changing hymns and choruses that speak about the wrath of God because they don't like the idea of God's wrath. Dear friends, I want to tell you, if we get rid of the preaching of the wrath of God in relation to the cross, you're never going to get anybody under conviction of sin. How on earth are they meant to see their sin? Unless they see that actually somebody has suffered on the cross. That's how angry God is with my sin. That's what brings conviction, doesn't it? It's when I realize actually I'm a sinner is when I see that Christ died on that cross and God the Father is that angry about my sin. But thank God there's somebody that stood in the way between that boltening light of God's wrath and my soul. And his name's the Lord Jesus. He intervened. This is the glorious gospel, friends. The first thing we need to be confronted with is the cross, the work of Calvary. We've talked about it. We've shared the Lord's table, the blood of the Lord Jesus, the cross, the sufficiency of the sacrifice. And the animals were put on these sacrificial altars. They were slain. And there's different types of offering that represent different things, but we haven't got time to go into that. But the point is that these offerings were put in the place of the person who would bring the offering for sin. And then the sins of the people would be covered. But the sins of the people were only covered. The actual sin was not expiated. It wasn't removed. It was covered for a season. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. We'll come to that. But the point is that the work of the cross is paramount to bring to people right at the beginning. And say, now brother and sister, being born again of the Spirit doesn't mean the Lord Jesus jumps around my life for me to live how I want to live. It means I lose my life. And he who loses it finds it. I tell you, sir, anybody who's really given their life to Jesus... You never find them miserable. They've learnt the secret of true happiness. They really have. It's in losing your life. If you're chasing around everywhere to try and save it, you'll find yourself the most miserable person on the earth because happiness as a God is elusive. But the moment you forget that and say, well, I'm not going to live for happiness I'm not going to live for my own pleasure anymore. I'm not going to live so that God can give me a good life. I'm going to live for Jesus because he's worth living for. And because he's worthy of praise. And the moment you and I hand over allegiance of our souls to the Spirit of God, and he becomes the leader of our lives, we will find our lives in order and blessed and encouraged, even through dark times. You can know a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, we do everything to save our lives. We do everything to prevent being on the altar. Somebody once said the problem with living sacrifices is they have a tendency to creep off the altar. It's absolutely true. But you won't find a better place to be. Not only did Jesus die for me, but I'm meant to be dead with him. In fact, we have died with him. That's what it says in Romans chapter 6, doesn't it? We have died with Christ. In baptism, we're buried with him. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. That's, the, that's what Christianity is all about, folks. 
is about the life of the Lord Jesus being lived through us. And this is only through means of the cross. So you would have the altar there. And then if you went further after that, you'd have the, the laver, which speaks of the washing. And our priests, if they were going to officiate within the holy place, they would have to wash their hands, they would have to wash their feet before every time they officiated in the tabernacle or concerning the offerings. Why was this? Why couldn't they just go into the holy place? Well, the psalmist tells us, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. We can fool each other, left, right and centre, but we can't fool God. And actually, we need clean hands. We need to continually go for that washing. Are we preaching about the importance of renewed cleansing? This is vital. Keeping short accounts with God. When I sin, I put it right. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 says that. But are we keeping short accounts? This is another element of it, friends. This continual washing. And then you go into the holy place. And in the holy place, you'd have the menorah. You would have the lampstand, which actually was made of beaten work which speaks of the beating body of our Lord Jesus. And the stems of that menorah coming out the side speak to us in many senses of the church. And the main stem in the middle speaks to us of the Lord Jesus. The whole work of a new body, as it were, comes out of the Lord Jesus. There is no church without the Lord Jesus. You can have an organization as a church, but the true church is, comes out of the work of Calvary and out of the, the Lord Jesus. He said himself, didn't we? I am the vine, you are the branches. But then on the lampstand you had the oil. And the oil speaks of the person of the Holy Spirit. And that lampstand was put in such a place that it would have to shine across to the other side of the holy place where the bread of the presence would be. The bread of the presence. What does the bread speak to us of? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The word of God. He is the life. So why does the light shine upon the bread? Because without the Holy Spirit, this is not alive to you. This won't be a living book. You can go to a cemetery, seminary, all you like. But you will not find it live unless the Spirit of God shines upon the page. What is missing within the church? Are we having the illumination of the Spirit of God? Are we knowing the Word of God coming in? Are we seeing illumination within the house of God? You remember also in the book of Revelation that the lampstand spoke of actual churches. But I thought the lampstand speaks of the Lord Jesus. It does, because essentially the Lord Jesus is the church. Essentially. You think about that carefully. I am the vine, you are the branches. Have you ever seen a vine and then tried to disassociate it from its branches? It makes no sense. The Lord Jesus is the head, we are the body. Do you ever try and disassociate a head from the body? Never. Everything needs to be the Lord Jesus in the house of God. As you went on further, you had the altar of incense. 
What does this speak of? The book of Revelation makes it clear that the incense speaks of intercessory prayer. Very clearly within the word of God. And what was the intercessory prayer for? Well, this is supposed to be all part of the house of God. And you'll notice that the altar of incense was the nearest to the holiest of all. The altar of incense was the nearest to the holiest of all. Behind the altar of incense, you had the curtain. And then behind the curtain, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest was allowed to go into that particular room once a year. But in that room, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represents what? Amongst other things, it represents the very presence of God. That's what the Ark of the Covenant represents. When you look in the book of Exodus and you look at verse 10 of chapter 25, what is the first article or piece of furniture that the Lord speaks to Moses of? It's the Ark of the Testimony. Because everything revolves around that. Everything revolves around the presence of God. And you remember that as Moses did as the Father showed him to do concerning the building of the tabernacle. And in chapter 40, we read that the glory of the Lord came down on the house. I read this last time. Verse 30. And he set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar. This is chapter 40 of, his, of Exodus. Chapter 40 of Exodus and verse 30. And he set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar and put water there to wash with all. And Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet thereat. When they went into the tent of the congregation and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord. What does it say? Amen. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and the Lord gets what he's after. He wants to fill the house. There's no point building a tabernacle. There's no point making a new church. There's no point in furnishing it however way you like unless ultimately the cloud comes down. Isn't that the point? If the church isn't filled with the presence of God, what's the point of the church? It's lost its identity. The true identity of the church is the Lord Jesus. Unless he fills everything and the presence of God comes down upon the work, then, dear friends, don't we, aren't we in danger of laboring in vain? The scriptures say that. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Psalm 128. We need to be those that know the measurements of God so that we may know the glory of God filling the house. And friends, consider for a moment, God wants to be among us. This should thrill your hearts. You look all very serious. <coughs> this should thrill our hearts that God's desire is to have a people that he can dwell among. I really believe that God wants the glory of his presence to fill this house every week. Every week. I believe he wants to fill this house to such an extent that people will begin to come in and say, what is this that these people have? Do you want the Lord to fill the house? Oh, praise God. Praise the Lord. If, you, if the Lord filled this house, 
our children would see the glory of God. And they would be changed. You wouldn't have to go up to them and try and persuade them that evolution is wrong. You wouldn't. They know God. They've seen him move amongst us. They've seen the power of his spirit. They've seen people broken before God. They see healing. They see deliverance. They see the fact that the people are shining with the presence of God upon their faces. They know him. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see this in greater measure? I thank God that we do have children that actually pray and worship God in some of the meetings. May that increase. May that increase. May we hear their voices more. May we know more children coming in and speaking out of the mouths of babes and sucklings the word of God. It's amazing what can happen. Absolutely amazing. Friends, something significant has happened. The Lord was on Mount Sinai with Moses, but now the Lord's down at the hill of Mount Sinai with the people. Hallelujah. What a glory this is. God's above, but he wants to come down. That's his heart. He wants to dwell amongst us. And then you find as you start the book of Leviticus, which almost is a carry-on from the book of Exodus. It says in verse 1 of chapter 1, And the Lord called unto Moses and spoke unto him out of thee. Tabernacle, before the Lord's on Mount Sinai, speaking to Moses to come up. <laughs> now the Lord's speaking through the tabernacle to Moses. And his presence is amongst his people. This is what God wants. And this is what surely is the only answer for our need. The Lord coming down. There I will meet with thee and I will continue with thee. Exodus 25 Verse 22, where there came a point where the people of Israel came into the land and there was no need for this structure of the tabernacle raised up for every change of place. And we go on after the finishing period of time of the tabernacle to go on to Solomon's temple. And we read about the temple in the book of 2 Chronicles. If you turn there, please. Sorry, 1 Chronicles 22. Please don't worry, I won't keep you for, another, for more than another three hours. So you're absolutely fine. Okay. Okay. 1 Chronicles 22. And let's read from verse 17. David also commanded all the princes of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into mine hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build ye the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built to the name of the Lord. You see, David wanted to build a house 
for the Lord. You read about this in Psalm 132. His burden was that the Lord would have a house for himself. We read in the scriptures, it says, in verse 5, For I will, give, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. That was the desire of, the, of King David, that he would, the Lord would have a dwelling place for himself amongst his people. Now, isn't that an interesting fact? Considering that actually the Lord's view of David was that David was a man after God's own heart. And so David's heart was after God's heart. What does that mean? It means that that which was in David's heart was that which was in God's heart. Have you got God's heart? Has God got your heart? If he's got your heart, then you've got his heart. But we need to know his heart. We need him to deal with our hearts so that his priorities, his desires, become our very own. It's like in the Song of Solomon with the Shulamite woman, who firstly says that my beloved is mine and I am his. Later on she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. But then finally she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. <laughs> what a place of maturity. She came through to the place where everything revolved around him, not her. And her desire simply became his. Whatever was on his heart, she wanted. Well, David was like that in a measure, wasn't he? He wanted the Lord to have a place for himself. And this was the very burden of God's heart, that he might have a dwelling place among his people. And so... We go on to read, if we can look a bit further on, the, we're going to have to skip a bit, but 1 Chronicles 23, verse 25, says this, For David said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest unto his people, that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever, and also unto the Levites. They shall no more carry the tabernacle, nor any vessels of it, for the service of the service thereof. For by the last word of David, the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and above. The Lord had given rest unto his people to dwell in Jerusalem. And so there was no need for the tabernacle to continue on. They needed a place that was permanent and would stay. And so the temple was built. And then we read about the glory of the Lord coming upon the temple. We haven't got time to go into the details this morning. But in the book of 2 Chronicles, we read that Solomon built according to the leading of David. David gave Solomon all that was necessary for Solomon to be able to build the house. And David was led by the Spirit of God. It actually says that. That David, everything he did was led by the Spirit of God concerning the temple that was to be erected. And so Solomon followed in the footsteps of his father. And he built this tremendous house. And then something happened. 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 13. It came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, 
that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. And then you go on to read chapter 6 and you read about Solomon spreading this prayer out before God. He's pleading with God. He's calling on God. And then in chapter 7 and verse 1 we read, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. There was fire and there was glory. Two elements that are missing today. But it was after prayer, wasn't it? It was after the seeking of God. And then the Lord again came down upon the, tabernacle, the, the temple. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. They couldn't minister. Imagine what that must be like when we're under such sense of the presence of God that we can't move. That we're just in a place on our knees before God because the presence of God is so strong in the place. Wouldn't we ex- want to experience the closeness of the Lord in that way? Or would we be happy to live through all our lives without ever knowing the closeness of God that our forefathers knew in history? Don't worry about the door. That our forefathers knew in history. Do you want to know the presence of God like that? I trust so. This is what we need in this generation. The presence of God among his people. They knew the glory of the Lord filling the house. Brothers and sisters, we haven't experienced that in our day. We don't know what it is to know the presence of God in that way, but we need to. We need to know the Lord's presence flooding the house of God so that our children may be changed and that we may know a wall built up in our day. Well, after Solomon's temple was built, there was a time later where the people of God rebelled and they were taken away to Babylon. And eventually, there was a second temple that was built. But it wasn't as big as the first temple that was built. And the second temple that was built was smaller. That Even some of the leaders remembered what the former glory of the first temple was like. And they wept before God when they saw the second temple built. But you remember it says in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4 and verse 6, Not by might, nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord. And the second temple was built. And praise the Lord, there was rejoicing even in that day. But there came an end to these things. And then there was Herod's temple after that, which was nothing to do with the temples that God was building. But then after that, there was another tabernacle. And the tabernacle was not a literal structure. It was a body. It was the body of the Lord Jesus. And it says in the book of John, in the gospel of John, that the Lord Jesus dwelt among us. It says in the gospel that the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. It's literally what it means. The Lord no longer was coming down in a structure. He wasn't coming down in a glorious building. He came down in the person of his very son. And he dwelt amongst us. The Lord Jesus, full of grace and truth. And that glory was in that temple. And there came a time on the mountain where the Lord Jesus was with his disciples. 
And as they stood there, the glory that was in the Lord Jesus suddenly burst through. And the disciples were able to say, we beheld his glory. Can you say that? Can you say in reality, I've beheld the glory of God? Can you be happy to live without him? The Lord Jesus was the tabernacle of God amongst men. But the Lord Jesus, after he died, was buried and rose again, ascended in bodily form into heaven. So where's the glory going to come now? (laughs) His glory now is to be revealed in his people. This is the great mystery that within the vessels of God is the treasure of the Spirit of God. You actually have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. That is remarkable. How many of us dare to actually consider the Holy One is dwelling in us by His Spirit? But He does. And He abides in us now. What does the scripture say? That the church is to be a habitation for God in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 says that the church is the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. But how so is it that there can be a church in the book of Revelation that yet the Son of God is not in the midst of? You see, it's not automatic, is it? We need, once again, to know the glory of the Lord filling the church. His presence among us. His nearness among us. There's coming a day, friends, when we will be raptured to be with the Lord. And we will be with him in glory. But what is going to be interesting is this. At the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, you find that God changes his own address. And one of the last things you read about the Lord in the book of Revelation is after we read this word, behold, behold. And it says this, the dwelling place of God is with men. Isn't that astonishing? That in all eternity, in the end, God gets his desire that he might have a people who he dwells amongst forever. Right back in Genesis, right through to Revelation, the Lord is looking To be among his people. In the garden. In the tabernacle. In the first temple. In the second temple. In the Lord Jesus. In the church. In the ages of ages to come. Brothers and sisters. Do you desire 
for the Lord to have a dwelling place. He looks amongst the churches in our nation. Where can I dwell? May the Lord find here, at least among us, a place where in measure the Lord can dwell, where we do things his way and everything is according to his measurements and his leading. Just the exact measurements that the Lord is after. Let's not change them. Let's do things his way. This is why we're going through the book of Acts, so that ultimately, by God's grace, we might know the presence of God among us in a more fuller and complete way. May the Lord help us all, because we can all easily get in the way, can't we? May the Lord help us all to seek him, to come upon us, not for our sakes, but for his great name's sake, and that a wall of protection might once again be around Jerusalem. Shall we pray? Lord, we've spoken about many things this morning, but we are asking you, Lord, to write on our hearts the burden of your heart. Do we pray that, Lord, where anything has been out from myself, that you would remove that from us, and that which has been of you, you would cause to linger with us. Erase from us what is of self. Bring us into what is of you. And help us to know the fullness of your desire amongst us. Be amongst us, Lord. Please find amongst us a place to dwell where your presence can be more realized, we pray. We ask that you continue to be with us as we have lunch together and fellowship together, that your hand would be upon us and your spirit too, Lord, and that we would know your presence in a powerful way. We thank you that you are such a great God and a loving Father. Thank you that you want to be with us, Lord. It's such a blessing to know that. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.